Good afternoon, fellow directors, past presidents, members, and guests. Welcome to the 117th season of the Empire Club of Canada. My name is Antoinette Tamilo. I'm the president of the Empire Club of Canada and thrilled to be your host today for our virtual event featuring Dr. Tedros Adonom Gibreyesus, Director General of the World Health Organization. I want to take a brief moment to recognize our sponsors who generously support the Empire Club and make these events possible. Our lead event sponsor today is Ryerson University School of Occupational and Public Health Faculty of Community Services. They have created a video on one of the most important questions they have long been focused on. What we build a society so that people, nature, and economies can all thrive. They have a unique understanding of what's at stake and a growing role in finding solutions. As the video will show, the university is increasingly focusing on research that will shape the way we live, from sustainable design to urban health and well-being, from governance and social justice to economic development, migration, and integration. Now for the video. To us, innovation means creating a future in which we'll harness the sun, the rain, and the earth to create sustainable design. We'll provide a path to lifelong wellness, personalized health solutions, and basic nutrition to build vibrant communities. We'll ensure access to justice for all, empower citizens to redefine our democracies and demand political representation that reflects our diversity. We'll create sustainable housing, jobs that keep pace with the times, and an economy that's good for the environment. We'll weave technology into the clothes we wear and the stories we tell as we bring the virtual world to life. create communities that always welcome newcomers, celebrate their role in our shared success, and serve as examples of how to live as one. We are Ryerson. I would also like to uh, acknowledge our supporting sponsors, the Da Dele Institute for Global Health Research at York University and Registered Practical Nurses Association of Ontario, also known as WeRPN. And our season sponsors, the Canadian Bankers Association and Waste Connections Canada. Also thanks to our event partner, BBC and LiveMeeting.ca for webcasting today's event. Now I have a few logistical items to share. If you're finding your internet feed is slow, please see below and click the switch screen button. And don't hesitate to press the request for help button if you are experiencing technical difficulties, our team will be happy to assist you. It is now my pleasure to call this virtual meeting to order. It is my profound pleasure to welcome to the Empire Club for the very first time, the Director General of the World Health Organization, Dr. Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus. And to do so at this especially significant moment in his life. For a few weeks ago, he became a grandfather. Of that great event, he wrote, as I looked into my granddaughter Mia's face the first time and held her tiny hand, I experienced the same wonder, joy, hope, pride, and love every parent and grandparent feels. But my joy was tinged with worry about the kind of world she will grow up in. Although she knows nothing about it, the COVID-19 pandemic will shape that world. The question is how? The answer depends on all of us, on our support for our WHO and for the innovative leadership of Dr. Tedros, the right person to guide it at this hectic, 
at this historic and hectic time. Dr. Tedros was elected as WHO Director General for a five-year term by WHO member states at the 70th World Health Assembly in May 2017. He is the first WHO Director General to have been elected from multiple candidates and the first from the African region of the WHO. Immediately after taking office in 2017, 2017 On July 1st, Dr. Tedros outlined five key priorities, health emergencies was one, was the second. The others were the health impacts of climate and environmental change when coverage. He was ahead of his coast to coast to coast. And he was ahead of his time in common cause with Canada long before. As Ethiopia's Minister of Foreign Affairs from 2012 to 2016, he led negotiations for the Addis Ababa Action Agenda, in which 193 countries committed to financing the Sustainable Development Goals. He also had an immense international impact as chair of the board of the Global Fund to Fight AIDS, Tuberculosis and Malaria, and as the co-chair of the Board of Partnership for Maternal, Newborn, and Child Health, the subject of the central accomplishment of the Group of Seven Summit that Canada hosted in 2010. Dr. Tedros offers his apologies, but immediately following his remarks, he has to leave to attend to other obligations at WHO. Dr. Tedros' special advisor, Dr. Peter Singer, will lead the discussion period, along with Dr. Kate O'Brien, the Director of Immunization, Vaccines, and Biologicals. He has left us in great hands for the question period. So Dr. Tedros, a very warm welcome to the Empire Club. Thank you for being with us today and taking the time to be here. So our podium is now yours. Thank you, thank you so much, Antoinette. Uh, grazie mille for that very kind introduction. Uh, Antoinette Tumilo, president of the Empire Club of Canada. And I see my good friend, John Kirten also. Distinguished guests, dear colleagues and friends. Good afternoon, and I would like to thank the Empire Club for the opportunity of sharing a few reflections with you today. My Canadian colleague, uh, Peter Singer, has told me about the long tradition and enormous influence of the Empire Club. So it's an honor to be invited. And from the short video I viewed, it's how beautiful actually to come in person, so colorful. And I hope to join you uh, once this pandemic is behind us and have another opportunity to speak uh, at the Empire Club of uh, Canada. I'm delighted to hear that the Empire Club will give its annual Nation Builder of the Year Award next month to the country's health and other frontline workers. Recently, member states at the World Health Assembly designated 2021 at the International Year of Health Care and Care Workers recognizing the dedication and sacrifice of the millions of health and care workers at the forefront of the COVID-19 pandemic. Thanks also to my friend, John Kirton. I also want to greet all those who have joined us online. On behalf of WHO, I would like to thank Prime Minister Trudeau, his cabinet, your provincial premiers, local mayors, and the millions of people across your country for the leadership Canada has displayed during this pandemic. Things have been far from easy, and we know that more challenges lie ahead. But Canada has treated this pandemic seriously and adopted an approach that many other countries regard as an example. I also want to note the long productive history shared by Canada and WHO. Indeed, 
WHO's first director general was Canadian, Dr. Brock Chisholm. As one of the authors of WHO's constitution, his legacy endures. We have Dr. Chisholm to thank for the definition of health in the WHO constitution, that health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, not merely the absence of disease or immunity. Dr. Chisholm was a psychiatrist and he fought hard to ensure that mental health was included in that definition. Canada has continued to lead in multiple areas of public health, including gender equality, sexual and reproductive health, polio, and more. This pandemic has reminded us of the importance of multilateralism, something that Canadians have always embraced. In the aftermath of the Second World War, countries came together to form the United Nations, recognizing that international cooperation is the only alternative to international conflict. The COVID-19 pandemic has tested and strained the multilateral system and shown why it's more relevant and more necessary than ever. In my address to the World Health Assembly last week, I called for a renewed multilateralism with a focus on solidarity, equity, and results, health, inequality, climate, and conflict cannot be tackled in silos. It's a time to forge a new era of cooperation, to fight the deep-seated inequalities that are at the root of so many of the world's problems. Canada is answering that call. WHO sincerely thanks Canada for your leadership, your nation's consistent recognition that we are in this together as one humanity is widely appreciated and widely acknowledged. Let me turn to what, where we are in our international efforts to combat COVID-19. More than 54 million cases of COVID-19 and more than 1.3 million deaths have now been reported to WHO. Last week alone, almost 4 million cases and 60,000 deaths were reported, the most in a single week so far. Unfortunately, Canada has not been spared. Like much of Europe and the Americas, in recent weeks you have seen a steep increase in cases and deaths. Much progress has been made, but great challenges still confront us. We might be tired of COVID-19, but it's not tired of us. The virus has no ideology or beliefs. Its only goal is to spread. The good news is that we know what works. It starts with the fundamentals of public health, with a focus on finding, testing, isolating, and caring for those infected and tracing and quarantining their contacts. And individuals and communities must play their part in keeping themselves and others safe by physical distancing, avoiding crowds, ventilation, wearing masks, and cleaning hands. Since the beginning of the pandemic, WHO has been providing the world with the evidence-based tools it needs to prevent, detect, and respond to COVID-19. At the same time, we knew that new tools would be needed to bring the pandemic under control. That's the end game. That's why WHO proposed the Access to COVID-19 Tools Accelerator to develop vaccines, diagnostics, and therapeutics fast and allocate them fairly as global public goods. But the ACT Accelerator will be no more than a noble gesture unless it's fully funded. We greatly appreciate Canada's generous support of 440 million Canadian dollars for the ACT Accelerator. 
the current financing gap for the ACT Accelerator stands at 23.8 billion US dollars and 4.3 billion dollars is needed urgently to maintain momentum. We are now starting to see very promising results from clinical trials of vaccines, but there are still many challenges to overcome. Moving from trials to vaccinating the world's population will not happen easily or instantly. The successful global distribution of COVID-19 vaccines will be among the most daunting logistical and operational efforts since World War II. Production, procurement, supply and distribution will require tremendous resourcing, coordination and planning. We must move now to identify and overcome hurdles such as vaccine verification, safety and monitoring of supply, and very importantly, responding to the spread of disinformation that might be employed to discourage vaccination. It will require innovation, persistence, and solidarity. But it's also important to emphasize that a vaccine will complement the other tools we have, not replace them. Once we have a safe and effective vaccine, we must also use it effectively. And the best way to do that is by vaccinating some people in all countries rather than all people in some countries. In our interconnected world, if some people miss out on vaccines, the virus will continue to circulate and the global recovery will be delayed. Initially, supply will be limited. So health workers, older people, and other at-risk populations will be prioritized. But that will still leave the virus with a lot of room to move. Surveillance will need to continue. Those infected will still need to be identified, tested, isolated, and cared for. Contacts will still need to be traced and quarantined. Communities will still need to be engaged and individuals will still need to be careful. We still have a long road to travel. And although a vaccine is needed urgently to control the pandemic, it will not fix the vulnerabilities at its roots. There is no vaccine for poverty hunger, inequality, or climate change. Every year, millions of people are plunged into extreme poverty because the health services they need are not available or they cannot afford them. That's why WHO's top priority is universal health coverage, built on the foundation of strong primary health care with an emphasis on access and equity. My personal hope is that we will see the world respond to the challenge of COVID-19 with a pronounced effort in the years ahead to extend the reach of primary health care, which is the best defense against future crisis and every other sort of health challenge. Even as we continue to battle this pandemic, I'm feeling hopeful. Hopeful because we know more hopeful because we're doing more, hopeful because we will do more, and hopeful because we're coming together to get it done. In that spirit, I would like to close with a couple of modest asks. I would ask that in the difficult weeks to come, you follow the advice of local public health officials, even when it requires real sacrifice. I would ask that you recognize and offer practical support to those many healthcare workers upon whom we all rely. And finally, I would ask that you maintain your hope. We will defeat COVID-19 together through cooperation, compassion, and solidarity. Thank you so much. Merci beaucoup. Thank you. Thank you so much, Madam President, again. Thank you.
Can you hear me now? Yes. I am so sorry. We've had a storm here the last few days and my internet connection is very shaky. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Tedros, for taking the time to be with us today and uh, for your advice and your diligence and pushing us forward to do the right things on a worldwide basis. You don't have an easy job, but we're rooting for you here in Canada. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Antoinette. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great honor for me and hope to join you in person in your future uh, sessions. Thank you. That would be I'm, awesome. I'm really honored. Very honored. Thank you. Thank you. Can you hear me at this point? Okay, good. Thank you. So um, I want to welcome back Dr. Peter Singer to the Empire Club. Thank you, Peter, for joining us again. Um, Dr. Singer is the Assistant Director General of the World Health Organization. He is the architect of WHO strategy and its triple billion targets. One billion more people benefiting from universal health coverage, one billion more people better protected from health emergencies, and one billion more people enjoying better health and well-being. If there's anyone who can help the organization achieve these lofty goals, it is Dr. Singer. And I also want to welcome um, Dr. Kate O'Brien. Uh, who's the Director of Immunization, Vaccines, and Biological Department at the World Health Organization. In this role, she's responsible for leading WHO strategy and implementation to advance the vision of a world where everyone, everywhere, at every age, fully benefits from vaccines for good health and well-being. Um, she's also the technical lead of the COVID vaccine pillar, a part of the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator. And um, the mission of COVAX is to deliver 2 billion doses of COVID vaccine by the end of 2021 to help end the acute phase of the pandemic. So before we get started with the questions from our audience, and this is an interactive event, so I encourage people to send in their questions. Um, Peter and Kate, um, if you can please maybe give a little more color on your background and how your involvement at WHO, how you're helping through this whole pandemic. And well, th thank you so much, Antoinette. Um, uh, Kate and I are both uh, Canadians, and uh, I was uh, the... Um, founder of the Joint Center for Bioethics and uh, co-founder of the Joint Center for Bioethics, Grand Challenges Canada. And in 2017, I came to WHO uh, with Dr. Tedros, inspired by him, and you just heard his inspiring remarks. And um, since that time, I've been here helping to uh, transform WHO into a very results-focused organization. I'm his special advisor and support him uh, in every way uh, he needs advice and support. So thank you, Antoinette. It's a pleasure to be back at the Empire Club, and it's a great pleasure to be here with Kate. And over to you, Kate. Thanks, Peter. Um, so uh, thanks, Antoinette, also for that really um, generous introduction. So I'm, a, as, as Antoinette said, I'm a Canadian. I'm, I'm uh, also, I'm a pediatrician and infectious disease uh, and vaccine um, specialist. Um, and I've spent my career developing vaccines, um, trying to evaluate them uh, uh, for, for their efficacy, and also really support countries um, largely in Africa and South Asia in developing policies about the best way to use vaccines and, and implement them. Um, I've also worked with First Nations communities, um, mostly in the United States. 
who are some of the communities who uh, have some of the highest risk of vaccine preventable diseases and assuring that the vaccines that we have are really able to do uh, what they need to do in those communities to reduce the inequities. And I joined WHO at the beginning of 2019 to lead the vaccine department at WHO. Uh, and here we are in 2020 with um, a historic pandemic for which we're all looking to vaccines to, um, to try to end this acute case. So thanks. Thank you. And you know, with that, I'll shoot right into the questions. And please let me know if the audio is not coming through well, because I'm, I'm, I'm getting feedback at my end. So um, in the news, you know, we're hearing lots of news about an effective vaccine. Pfizer last week, Moderna yesterday, um, which is all really great news uh, for stopping the, the pandemic. But... We're just wondering, when will it actually be available or just to wait patient, patiently until, you know, they continue to test, solve all the, um, you know, subsequent steps on the testing of the vaccines at this point? Maybe I can start off with that. Um, uh, yes, because everybody knows, we've had two press releases um, this week, uh, late last week that have announced results of um, the first results of phase three clinical trials. And those are the results where a vaccine is tested uh, to see whether it actually prevents disease. Um, and so these are incredible results uh, that have come out in these press releases. We're extremely hopeful these vaccines and for the other vaccines that are in the pipeline that are coming forward. Um, but having these results are really the first step. Uh, they need to be reviewed by regulatory authorities who will um, go through in detail these results, um, including the safety results. And we'll, we'll assume that they will get um, approved and authorized by, by regulators. And even when that happens, really what we're looking for is delivery of vaccines. Um, vaccines that sit on a shelf or in a freezer or in a refrigerator. It's not vaccines that save lives, it's vaccination that saves lives. And manufacturers have been um, working at risk to scale up the number of doses that will be available. So we are looking at having um, hundreds of millions of doses of vaccines uh, available in the first year and certainly many more in the second year of, of their availability. But I'm sure we'll be talking more about um, what to do with those doses um, and the best way, not just the the right way, but also the smart way to deploy those vaccines so that they can in fact um, uh, deliver the greatest impact possible, even though in the early phase will be in su significant supply constraint. Peter, I wonder if there's anything you want to say. Yeah, thank you, Kate. I fully agree with uh, uh, what uh, Kate said, and I'd just like to um, uh, maybe emphasize a couple of things. I'd like to emphasize one of the key messages Dr. Tedros had in his speech, which was that we're now facing what may be the most significant logistical effort and initiative in a very long time, maybe since the Second World War. And that's uh, a very, very significant uh, logistical challenge we're moving into. Also, as Kate mentioned, what's really key here is equitable access. It's uh, much better to distribute the vaccine to some people in all countries than all people in some countries. And in fact, there's modeling that shows that that saves lives. But the other thing I wanted to do very briefly is just say um, that, uh, you know, as the prime minister said, this is the light at the end of the tunnel. But right now, we want to fully acknowledge and recognize that we're in the tunnel. And uh, things seem uh, very challenging, I'm sure, for Canadians at the moment as their lives and livelihoods are threatened. Um, and uh, on behalf of the World Health Organization, I just wanted to uh, extend our condolences to the families of those who've lost their lives and also our respect and appreciation to health workers and indeed all essential workers they constitute, health workers constitute maybe 3% of the global population and maybe 14% or so of the COVID cases. And so they are taking on personal risk to benefit their communities and they deserve all our respect and, uh, 
and appreciation, which is why, Antoinette, it's terrific that the Empire Club has decided to uh, devote your Nation Builder of the Year Award to health care and other essential workers. So I just want to add that, Antoinette, and back to you. Thank you, Peter. You know, we're getting a lot of questions in around, you know, when is the vaccine going to be available? Who's going to get it first? How, how, you know, when can we expect to get it in Canada, North America? How is it going to be distributed equitably? How is WHO helping to make sure that once a vaccine is available, that it will be distributed in a fair way? I think Kate is probably one of the best people in the world to start off answering that uh, question. Thanks, Peter. Um, the uh, the question of of you know these are all these are all extremely important questions and and at WHO we've been um, working um, ever since the pandemic to um, establish first of all um, policies that would be really grounded in evidence and not just opinion about what should be done first what should what should happen next and countries like Canada um, uh, have very strong um, uh, policy-making um, uh, bodies that uh, that are guiding these decisions in Canada. So I just want to emphasize a few things about, uh, you know, who will get vaccines first. These are decisions that are made by each country, um, and it is the responsibility of every country to, uh, to set those policies around population prioritization. The, the most important groups, as Peter was just speaking about, um, uh, are to really put the health workers first. Um, they are not only the workers who have uh, are at risk of exposure to COVID cases because of their um, their the work that they do, but they're also essential for maintaining the health services for everything else that we rely on them for: uh, cancer care, care of children, care of adolescents, uh, orthopedic care, heart disease care. So it's all of these elements, and we don't want to simply move from one crisis to another crisis. So um, the prioritization of health workers, which is inclusive of also social workers, uh, it's, not, it's not just a health care worker in a healthcare facility, but all, all people who are caring for, for people, and really prioritizing those among those groups who are at high and very high risk of transmission um, of COVID. Once, th once that is prioritized, then we're really looking at reducing um, the most severe impact of COVID. And the reason we're all in the situation that we are is because of the severity of the disease. It's because of people who become severely ill and especially for the deaths that have occurred. Um, and, and just the, um, the, the grief that that um, has caused to so many families and the loss of life because of this um, because of this virus. If this was a disease that was a pandemic but a mild illness, we wouldn't be instituting all of the things that we are. It really has to do with severity. So what we really have to focus on then is those who are at most risk of severe disease um, and at risk of death. And that is largely groups in older ages um, and those with underlying conditions. And then of course there are the essential workers. And so there is a, a, a sequence and a categorization um, that WHO has provided after a full review and analysis of all available data around the world. Um, and this provides an opportunity for any country to, to rely on those policy um, recommendations that have been issued um, from WHO, from the Director General on the way to prioritize. The real question is how do we equitably distribute these vaccines? And um, we have been calling for really vaccine multinationalism as opposed to vaccine nationalism. We really want that multilateral approach because getting those, um, the, the supply that we have, there isn't enough vaccine around the world in this first year to vaccinate probably all the populations, all the groups in every country that are going to need vaccine. So we have to do something that is both right and is smart scientifically. And as Peter said, immunizing some people in every country is a better approach and saves more lives than immunizing all the people in a small number of countries. And so we have developed a global facility um, called the COVAX facility, 
which has as members of that facility, any country around the world can join the facility and it is the approach to aggregate supply and then to allocate that supply according to fair and equitable principles um, that WHO has developed in consultation with all of the countries that are part of WHO. So those are the, the sort of key building blocks for how we're gonna get ourselves out of uh, this pandemic. And it really requires that multilateral approach and the cooperation among countries um, to put the science first, put public health first, and to really prioritize um, those who are at most risk first um, while the supply uh, is growing um, and manufacturers are investing in, in more supply uh, around the world to get those billions of doses that we're going to need for everybody. I think the only thing I'll add, Antoinette, to Kate's answer, which I thought, uh, with which obviously I fully agree, is the um, uh, more general case about inequities. Uh, Kate talked about it in the context of vaccines, but one of the harsh lessons of COVID is that it preys on inequities. It exploits the cracks. It shines a harsh spotlight on the pre-existing uh, inequities, the social inequities, and, 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 and so on. And that's one of the uh, real lessons. And so in uh, moving forward, and very much so in the response, it's important to recognize that. And um, uh, that's why Dr. Tedros emphasized so much uh, the issue of equity. And that's also an area where uh, Canada has been quite strong with its focus on, on gender equality. But uh, this virus play, preys on socioeconomic inequities. It preys on um, marginalized communities. It play, preys on racialized communities. And I think it's very, very important to recognize that in the context of the vaccine, but also uh, more generally. And that's inequities among countries and it's also inequities within countries. So, Peter, maybe this question's for you. Canada's gone out and have done deals on five or 10 times um, the amount of vaccines we actually need. You know, if you look at our population here, why are we doing that? Well, I think Kate might want to start off on that one and then I'll... Uh... Um, over the past months, as uh, there's this enormous pipeline of manufacturers, developers, scientists, uh, public health institutes that are all racing to develop a variety of vaccines, countries around the world have been asking themselves which ones of these vaccines are going to work. And of course, we don't know which ones are going to work until we actually have the results. And, and as I mentioned before, last week was the first time that we have results from any of these candidates to demonstrate whether the vaccine can protect against disease. And so over these months, uh, countries, some countries have been um, pursuing agreements um, with manufacturers for doses um, under an assumption that, um, or under a condition that those vaccines might reach licensure. And so Canada, like, like other countries, um, has been uh, looking to have uh, agreements with manufacturers that if all of those doses um, actually reach licensure, there, there would be, in fact, more doses than there are um, people in the country. I think the question is really um, more about what countries are doing that have these bilateral deals um, what are they also doing around um, global access? And Canada is a member of the COVAX facility, um, as are over 184 other economies. So these, the COVAX facility, the countries and the economies that are part of it represents over 90% of the world's population. This is a really strong testament to the understanding and the confidence that countries have in the need for this multilateralism. And there's probably going to be a combination of approaches that countries take. Some of the doses coming through the COVAX facility, some of the doses coming from the bilateral arrangements that have been made. Um, and, and for some countries that have made arrangements with a 
a number of manufacturers, they may end up with more doses that they need and donations may occur to the COVAX facility of the excess, excess doses so that those can be deployed to other countries around the world that didn't have the benefit of being able to make those, those arrangements with manufacturers. So I think we're in the very early days now. We still don't know which of these vaccines are actually going to reach licensure. And we're really calling on countries like Canada and others that have the benefit um, of those arrangements to, to continue to put the multilateralism um, as a priority, which Canada has been very strong in committing to and has demonstrated that through the support to the COVAX facility. So the, the, the road ahead um, provides lots of opportunity for, for actually um, meeting the needs uh, that both Canada has and, and other uh, countries around the world. Yeah, and Antoinette, just to uh, build on Kate's uh, response, um, I think it's important for people to realize that this is an unprecedented scientific effort. More than 200 vaccine candidates, about 50 in human trials, about 10 in late stage trials, 10 months into a pandemic, completely unprecedented. Um, secondly, uh, Canada is a member of the ACT Accelerator. It's joined the ACT Accelerator and the COVAX facility. It's also one of the top funders of the ACT Accelerator and the COVAX facility. So I think we need to appreciate Canada's uh, contributions um, uh, to COVAX. It put actually a half its funds into um, 15 million doses for Canadians, uh, which is a type of insurance policy for which vaccines work, and half its funds into a lifeline for 92 low and lower middle income, uh, low and lower middle income countries. And then finally, um, I think this is an issue where Canadians going forward, as Kate said, really will have a very strong voice uh, to encourage the equitable global distribution of vaccines as a global good. You know, Canadians are a very charitable people. Um, and definitely this is charity, but it's not just charity. It's also self-interest because the uh, prosperity, the national security, and the health of any country in the world is only ensured if uh, COVID is addressed in every country in the world, because none of us are safe until all of us are safe. And so um, uh, that's a, a thought I would leave uh, your viewers with, and it's something where uh, we hope that your um, we hope that people in the audience will actually continue to press that case along with us uh, uh, in Canada and around the world. Maybe I can just add a little bit, um, Peter. I think that's a great point that you added. Um, and, and I think the example that we can see that's happening right now, um, both in Canada and in other countries, is that there are countries and there are parts of Canada, the Atlantic bubble, for instance, um, that has really controlled COVID. But the, but the means to do that means that there isn't free flow of people in and out of the out of the out of the bubble or you know if we use New Zealand as an example and another country that as long as every country uh, you know continues as long as there is COVID that is moving um, between countries or between regions it doesn't actually solve the problem if you if we just take care of ourselves we, we are a global world there is global travel transport business and so this idea that we're really not uh, out of this until we have the protections um, in every country. And, and, and that's really where we need to get to. And that's why we keep emphasizing, it's not just the right thing to do, it's actually the smart thing to do because we can't get our freedom back. We can't get our flexibility back until that is actually distributed across the whole of the world. You know, you bring up a good point. Um, you know, one of the questions is around, you know, how WHO and the Canadian government are working together um, to save lives um, amidst the surging COVID-19 cases. I and mean, people are getting tired of this lockdown. And, um, you know, you're seeing people just thinking, well, we'll just get through this. It's, it's we're gonna be okay. Um, and, you know, we're struggling in some parts of Canada. Uh, we won't even talk about the US. Um, how, how, 
you know, how do we get that across to people that, you know, we really all have to be in this together as we're, as you're saying, do you think we're getting through to people? Yeah, thank you. Um, so first of all, just to acknowledge that I think people are getting tired. This is really uh, tough. And um, I should say that I know this firsthand. I had COVID. And uh, I know the uncertainty that comes with it. Thankfully, I had a very mild case. Um, so uh, I completely understand uh, how, people, uh, how people feel. And uh, it is very tough at the moment. What I would say is it's extremely important to continue the public health measures. You know, there's a real variation of, um, of situations in countries around the world. And some countries have done extremely well. Uh, Vietnam, Thailand, Rwanda, New Zealand. And uh, the core common ingredient is actually a strong adherence to the public health measures of... Um, essentially, to use a Canadian metaphor, putting the virus in the penalty box, testing, isolating uh, cases, tracing and quarantining contacts. And uh, by the way, that's what's going to save lives until we have a vaccine that is getting into people's uh, arms, while we have a vaccine and after we have a vaccine. So please uh, continue the public health measures, uh, those and the ones that Dr. Tedros mentioned, masking, physical distancing, avoiding poorly ventilated indoor spaces, and as a last resort when necessary, and many jurisdictions are there, unfortunately, uh, re restriction, movement restriction, so-called lockdowns. Uh, but then finally, um, you know, the, the, what I would like to leave uh, people with is the sense of hope. It's the sense of hope. We defeated smallpox. The world defeated smallpox together. That caught, killed 300 million people in the last century. That's more than the number of deaths in all the wars combined in the last century. That was at the height of the Cold War with the United States, the then Soviet Union, working together with all countries in the world and uh, with the World Health Organization playing a very, very central role in that. We defeated smallpox and we will defeat COVID-19. So although things seem bleak at the moment, uh, I want to leave people with a sense of hope. It's almost a Churchillian moment right now. And we're at the Empire Club and Winston Churchill uh, spoke here, but he gave a very famous speech in 1940. Uh, we'll fight on the beaches. We'll fight here. We'll fight there. And we shall never surrender. And that's really, I think, the attitude that uh, um, we need to take now because there is hope. We will defeat this. And the vaccine news is extremely encouraging, interim results, but very encouraging. Um, so we will get through this, we'll get through this together. Solidarity is vital. And the only way to get through it is together. Kate, you may want to add or expand on some of those thoughts. Yeah, I, I, um, I just, uh, there, I guess there are three things that I wanted to add to that. The first is that, um, uh, we have spoken, you know, in this in this uh, uh, convening about um, the challenges ahead to deploy the vaccine, but there is so much that people can do to overcome those challenges, and we really need everybody who, putting their oar in the water, being in the boat, and rowing in the same direction. Um, there's a lot that people in communities can do to facilitate, to really ease that delivery of vaccine, um, the, notwithstanding that we are already hearing, as, as I think everybody knows, that there are questions uh, and lots of uncertainty among some people for a vaccine that we don't even really have yet. And it's extremely important that people have an understanding about the importance of the vaccines and that we have not compromised in any way the evaluation of safety and the evaluation of these vaccines. I know there are questions about that. And it's extremely important that people are getting their information from credible sources. So that's that's the first, is everybody in the community can do something to ease the delivery um, you know, pathway that we're all going to have to walk together. The second is that, so we do have this light at the end of the tunnel. And um, as fast as these vaccines have been developed, everybody is doing everything possible to go as quickly as possible without compromising safety or efficacy or manufacturing quality to get decisions on authorizing the vaccines and getting them out there. So that's the first. We do have that light out there. It also means that we've 
proven through these, these two results that um, the target for the vaccines seems to be the right target. This is a virus that if you can develop antibodies against that part of the virus that pretty much all of these vaccines are targeting. So we also have great hope that there will be a, a, another series of vaccines coming in right behind these and therefore more supply than maybe we anticipated there would be. The second point is I really wanna point our attention to young people. And I think we're starting to really, really understand this, uh, what I think is starting to be termed this generation disrupted. Uh, and so there are things that we can do, especially for children, adolescents, and those who are you know, trying to begin their lives. Um, for anybody who has the opportunity to employ somebody, to um, create an internship, to just allow these young people to get started with their lives in spite of these massive disruptions to their, to their education, anything that can be done to create opportunities. I think that's really a second focus that these are a generation of kids, adolescents, young adults who are going to be marked by this pandemic. And I think it's our responsibility as the generations ahead of them to, uh, that we benefited from a world that was actually free of smallpox, that was largely, for the countries that we're talking about, free of polio. Um, and, and they're living through something that, uh, that is as hard as it is for us, it's even harder for them. And the third that I would um, really uh, uh, focus on is um, the essential health services. And I really wanna come back to the health and social workers who are maintaining all of the things that we all rely on for our, uh, our good health and the, the needs that we have in hospitals and clinics and nursing homes and, and everywhere. Um, and if we can you know, just continue to focus on energy, our energy um, on assuring that they are supported, um, they're funded, that we have the resources to assure that they can do the work that's, uh, that's keeping us all well and safe while, while we are speeding towards a new tool um, that will be added to the tools that we that we already have and do not take our foot off the pedal on implementing the existing tools that we have, that we know they work. If they're implemented with fidelity, we can control this virus. Um, but what we need is a new tool so that we are not as restricted as, as we are right now. So I think those are the three things I would just like to, to add to that. Thank you. There are too many questions and not enough time to ask, but there is one that's come through several times. How do we convince these people to actually get vaccinated who are very nervous about getting there? Um, what advice do you have on that? Um, maybe I can start off a bit and then I'll pass over to Peter. Um, the, uh, this, you know, this, the, the, there is a lot of misinformation uh, out in the social media um, in particular about uh, the vaccines. And I think one of the questions that people have is they've heard over and over because we've been saying it over and over and it's true that the, uh, this has been vaccine development at unprecedented speed. And I think there's an uncertainty that some people have. Well, if it's so unprecedented, how can we be sure that these vaccines actually meet the safety standards that we um, have set for all vaccines? Um, and the answer to that is the reason that this has gone at speed is it, there, there are several reasons. One is that the entire world is focused on developing these products. And Peter started off earlier today talking about the number of candidates that are in the pipeline for vaccine development. It's like having shots on goal. The more shots on goal you have, the more likely you are to be able to score. The second reason is that we have amazing scientific technologies that have come forward in the past five and 10 years that we didn't have before when we were developing vaccines. So there is science behind the ability to sequence, going from actually identifying this virus to sequencing the virus and having the development of the first candidate was done in a period of weeks and, 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 and short months. If you think of HIV as another example from the early 1980s, it took in fact several years before the virus was even uh, identified, let alone the, the sequence of the, the genes that were encoding those viruses. 
We now can do that in days. It's because of technology investment in science that many governments, including the Canadian government has made um, that allows us to go at speed. And the third reason that we can go at speed is that we have worked to redesign the processes so that once we have met the standards of one phase of testing, we can move directly to the next phase of testing um, without long pauses between those. So those are some of the reasons why we've gone at speed. And that needs to be communicated um, to people in, in the community um, and people around the country. So they have an understanding of why these have gone at speed and are assured of the oversight of safety uh, that we are not compromising on. And then I think there's a very strong responsibility of um, those who are in, um, who have the platform, who have podiums, either through social media, journalists, anybody who's communi communicating, that includes people like all of you in the community to access information from credible sources. There are many, many sources out there that are not credible scientific sources go to places that provide scientific, credible evidence. And I think it's really incumbent on journalists, social media actors uh, to assure that, that, uh, that they are uh, using information um, that is not misinformation or malinformation or disinformation. We've got all these different terms um, and, and people are um, communicating with with their families and their loved ones about, about what is actually accurate information. Yeah, Antoinette, I know we're at the end of our time, so I'll be, uh, I'll be very brief, but I just want to um, uh, fully agree with what Kate said. I think she answered the question uh, that you asked extremely well. There was an earlier question about WHO and Canada that I just wanted to uh, touch upon since it did come up earlier. And uh, you heard um, the appreciation Dr. Tedros expressed for Canada, for the government of Canada. Uh, I just wanted to add that the relationship obviously between WHO and Canada is a 73 year old relationship since the founding of WHO. Uh, it's strong, it's a very vibrant relationship. And uh, uh, I think as Kate and I are both uh, international public servants. So we, in a sense, we were neutral, but we're also Canadians and we feel proud of uh, what Canada is doing, what the government of Canada is doing internationally and uh, the uh, WHO Canada relationship that is strengthening and um, is continuing to strengthen. And we hope and believe will continue to strengthen uh, even more as, as we go forward and fight uh, this together. Uh, between WHO, all nations of the world, and all peoples of the world. So, Antoinette, thank you very much. Uh, on behalf of WHO, Dr. Tedros, on behalf of Kate and I, for giving us the privilege, really, of connecting with our fellow Canadians and sharing some of these uh, thoughts at what is a very challenging time for, uh, for many Canadians. Uh, Antoinette, back to you. Thank you very much. I, I missed the last part, but I will be sure to go back and listen to... Uh, your answer, Kate. I, I want to thank you both for being with us today. Ryerson, on behalf of Ryerson, I'm providing the appreciation remarks. Um, and um, I, I think that uh, I'm hoping, I feel hope, I feel that we can all do something. You, you've given us some guidance. And um, I think if we all the, the analogy you use, Kate, is if we're all rowing in the same direction, we will get there. Um, and I'm an eternal optimist, so I'm going to keep hoping we're going to get there sooner rather than later. And uh, I know that uh, the WHO is doing everything possible to uh, uh, help us get there. So thank you again. Um, I, I do want to take a moment to um, just share with you some of our upcoming events. I encourage people to go online. We've got lots of great events coming up. Uh, on November 19th, we've got Minister Sarkaria, Ontario's Associate Minister of Small Business and Red Tape Reduction. November 20th, we've got uh, Blake Hutchinson, President and CEO of OMERS. November 26th, we've got Sean Finn, who's the Executive Vice President at um, CN. 
And on December 10th, our Nation Builder Year of the Year Award. Um, uh, please join us for that. That will be a major event, and we're very excited about um, this year's award going to the frontline workers, as we've discussed, who else is more deserving than our frontline workers. So join us. We've got lots of VIPs and celebrities um, attending that event. And I also encourage you all to submit a testimonial for a frontline um, at hashtag nation builder hero of your choice. And this can be someone you know that is a frontline worker and, um, you know, and yourself, if you're a frontline worker, send it in and you'll have a chance of winning $5,000. So uh, registration for all these events is free. And um, this meeting is now adjourned. Thank you. Bye-bye.